I'm Daniel Blackman. I'm Eric Cohen. And welcome to this week's edition. I think we can say edition because we have multiple shows. So we this week's edition of Blue Topsy. Before I start, uh, our thoughts, prayers, condolences are with the folks uh, in Paris and, and with Notre Dame and, and, and uh, the, everything that's going on with, um, you know, just the, the issue with the church, the fire and the thousands of years of things that have gone on there. I think we definitely could keep them in our prayers and hope the world begins to heal behind that and we, we rebuild. Yeah. Uh, when I was a child, you know, we had a house fire that actually started in my room. Okay. So I understand. You didn't set it, did you? I did not. It was a weird thing. No, okay. I, did, I was not like an anarchist or anything. Like that. That's not <laughs> how it happened. But yeah, you know, you see fire and it's, they'll rebuild. That's, that's how it goes. You know, you pick up, but at least the whole structure wasn't lost. Well, I mean, this is Easter week, so we're, we're thankful that no one was in there. Everyone was accounted for. Great things happening. And, uh, again, welcome to Blue Topsy. This week uh, we have something that's great for not only the show but for me. I'm from Columbus, Georgia, yes, for people that don't know. I went to uh, elementary, middle, and high school in Columbus, Georgia, was raised there. My father served on Fort Benning, which is the uh, largest Army installation in the world. And today we have the former mayor of Columbus. Uh, not only was she elected the first woman to be mayor of the city of Columbus, but she was reelected and she has done a phenomenal job and she is here with us today. Yeah, great. It's good to be here. Welcome, Teresa Thomason. So, Eric, why don't you start us off? Because not only is Teresa here in uh, Forsyth County today, but we're going to have a great conversation about some of the things you're working on. But why don't you just open us up with the conversation and let's let's get this thing started, man, because we've got a busy night. She's on the we road, some exciting <laughs> things going on. So yeah, let's yeah. go. We do. So welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. So one of the things that we like to do is kind of know a little bit more about the person. Right. And... Daniel's ready so that you're mayor of yeah. Columbus. Mm -hmm. What got you involved in politics? Well, actually, I started in politics when I was eight years old. My wow. best friend's dad was a Georgia state legislator. My parents were fairly politically agnostic. Mm -hmm. uh, they voted, but, you know, they never put a bumper sticker on the car or anything like that. And I really don't even remember them being particularly, I remember them voting for Jimmy Carter, obviously, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't remember there being any partisan debates, uh, you know, um, it, it, when I was a young child. But my best friend's dad uh, was serving in the Georgia State Legislature. So when uh, most kids were at birthday parties and <laughs> at the park and stuff, we were handing out flyers in a grocery store parking lot saying, vote for her daddy. Um, he making was, me feel bad. Yeah. That's what I have my kids doing. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> he was a very hands-on guy. I mean, as I grew older and understood political philosophy, he and I had very little in common, yeah. uh, actually. But um, he was really in touch with his constituents. He believed in absolute transparency that everybody had to have access to their elected officials. So he did a ton of town halls, community meetings. And so I got to see that side of it. And, and from there, um, just always stayed involved, ran for student government, uh, worked on Capitol Hill in the U.S. Senate, uh, volunteered for a United States senator when I was in college, um, actually worked on a presidential campaign. I worked, I was um, in Virginia, the state of Virginia, uh -huh. going to school. I went to school in scholarship there. Sweet, and sweet Briar, Sweet Briar right? College in Virginia, okay. women's college. And I was supposed to go to, uh, to either the University of Georgia or Georgia Tech, and I got one of those postcards in the mail from Sweetbriar College, and it said, where we build 
women leaders. And wow. I thought, there's a place that does that. <laughs> I mean, I've never heard of that. I'm going there. My parents thought I'd lost my mind. We'd never even been to the state of Virginia, you know. <laughs> but, um, but in any event, yeah, so I um, signed up for something and uh, got in, in, involved in the Reagan Bush 1984 wow. presidential campaign. I was the only woman in a 12-person team of youth for Reagan. Wow. So it was our job. We were literally paid to go around and make Bob Dole look young and energetic. <laughs> I swear to God. I swear to God. And it was actually shortly after that that um, you know I, I got involved in more um, campaign work, um, being trained to be a political operative, being trained to be a campaign manager. And that's when I started to really congeal my personal political philosophies and realized I wasn't a Republican <laughs> at all. <laughs> Never had been a Republican. I just somehow had gotten stuck, uh -huh. you know, in, on that list. And, and, um, and by, with Max's influence, the Georgia State Legislator, he happened to be a Matt Republican Cleland? at the time. No, it was actually a guy by the name of Max Davis. Okay. Yeah, and he served in the Georgia Legislature for like 30 years. But he was a Republican, and I learned then we shared very, very little in common. Uh, so I jumped the fence about, oh, gosh, now it's been 30 years ago, uh -huh. and I've uh, been a Democrat ever since. So that's how I got started. I was one of those people, probably like you guys, I, I twisted folks' arm to run for office. Like, yeah. hey, Eric, man, don't you want to run for city council? Um, picked up a lot of checks for folks, raised a lot of money for folks, um, wrote some speeches, that kind of thing. Yeah. And I was looking for somebody to run for mayor and uh, just was like, oh, my God. God, why won't people run? These, this is so important and decide to cut out the middleman and run. Well, I can say this. When I left Columbus, Georgia, I didn't want to go back. Yeah. Uh, the Columbus I grew up in, uh, there was a lot of good things going on, but there there wasn't the progress, the opportunity. Uh, like I said, you know, uh, total systems in our, in our conversation earlier in Synovus, those were two opportunities I had early, but I decided to take an internship and ultimately met my wife, so I made the yeah. right decision. <laughs> but what I want to say, say this to you, I've never said this to you in person, uh, I have heard so much about the new Columbus. Yeah. Uh, with the Riverwalk, uh, with crime had gone down, we still have some issues there, but oh, yeah. with how you have um, addressed social issues, and for me, as I, I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, but I spent the majority of my life in Columbus, my adolescent years, and I can honestly say thank you because a lot of my friends did make it out. Yeah. And uh, Crystal Pendleton, if she's listening, yes. Shaid, uh, <laughs> which is a very good friend, um, is, is one of the reasons why I felt so compelled to have you here. So let's jump in yeah. head first and let's, let's talk about, let's go back to 2018. Yeah. 2018 comes and Teresa Thomason's name is floated around to run for governor. Yeah. Uh, and, and you don't run for governor, and, and you work extremely hard to get Democrats elected. Yes. We have talked on this show on more times than one about with the strides Stacey and Sarah Miko and other candidates have made. You didn't decide to run. What did you learn from 2018, looking from the outside, looking in? Right, right. Well, one of the exciting things about 2018, um, you know, Stacey Abrams and I have known each other for a while, and um, and she had a really great philosophy about how we could crank up voter turnout. And I think we saw that demonstrated in 2018. It was basically a general election turnout in a in a mid mid year a midterm election, and so that was amazing and it worked. Um, we also shared a, a, a political philosophy that we had to get the voter turnout up in what are blue counties in central 
Georgia. It's a place called the quote-unquote Black Belt, which is an ag a reference, an agricultural reference to the color of the soil because it's so rich and fertile, and there's it's a huge agrarian area there. But those are, are Democratic counties, and mm -hmm. we've been losing them over time. Uh, and so you saw Stacy really being one of the first candidates um, to even look outside of Atlanta um, to try and cut into what the Republicans call their rural strategy. Right. And and we ended up with all the successes of, of 2018, Daniel, we actually lost seven counties that we normally win in central Georgia. Um, and I think that's because the Republicans have done such a good job of um, trying to make uh, Democrats be exclusively uh, urbanite philosophies, yeah. that we only mm -hmm. care about what's going on in cities, that we don't know what farmers' lives are like, and we don't know what uh, people's lives are like in Albany and Macon mm -hmm. and Georgia and Savannah. And uh, and so they're they're really good at, at, at turning that script of the other, mm -hmm. you know, cranking that script out of, quote, the other. And one of the reasons I became interested in running, I didn't um, run uh, for governor, one, because I still had uh, – two terms that I was actually approached in 2017. So I had two years on my term to okay. finish out. And I really think you got to finish the job you got first. You need to keep your eye on the ball, not on the stands when you're in the batter's box. And I wanted to finish out and finish out strong. Can you say that again? Uh, when you're in the batter's box, keep your eye on the ball, not on the stands. I love it. Yeah, yeah. That's and, if, if you do decide to get out yeah. there, that's a good campaign slogan. Put, put, put that on a bumper sticker. Yeah, well, you know, and people do that. They're always thinking, uh, that's that's an essential part of leadership, uh, by the way, is people are always thinking, how's this going to poll? Will I be reelected yeah. if I do this? You have no idea how something's going to poll two, three, four mm -hmm. years from now. That's right. You've got no idea how it's going to play in the future. So what you need to do is lead, and that will or will not be electable, uh, depending on whether you should be in this position. And so I just lead all day long, you yeah. know, and, and that's why we were able to do some of the amazing things that you talked about, which I appreciate you. But, but, but we, you know, Columbus is a minority majority community. It's one of those I'm talking about when I'm saying we have very rich, fertile political soil out there outside of the metro, fabulous metro Atlanta area, which is where I grew up. I went yeah. to Chambly High School. Um, and you went to law school at Emory. At Emory, yeah, yeah. So I lived the first half of my life in, in uh, Atlanta and the second half of my life in, in Columbus. And so I've seen it from, from both sides. And we have Democrats all over the state. Right. Uh, it's just that we've seeded uh, these counties. There are people who are living in what would be blue counties, what would be minority-majority counties, and they're under the impression that they live in the, quote, rural red. And we've done nothing as Democrats to set up infrastructure to bring them out. Uh, Stacy was the very first one to talk about it, um, to, to visit some of those places, and we've got a long way to go. If we had, um, if she had caught the wind of somebody doing that before her, she would be governor. Yeah. Um, because we wouldn't have lost those seven counties. We would have shaved those margins. But real quick, I'll say this, and then I, I, I can see Eric's <laughs> wanting to jump in here on some of this wonky stuff. But, but you know, um, what the Republicans do to win, uh, There's Georgia's never been this red, uh, as people say that it is. We actually have more Democrats in Georgia than we do Republicans, and that's been the case for many years. But in, it, when Paul Coverdale was senator, now this goes way back uh, to the 80s. But when Paul Coverdale was senator, he actually came up with something called the Paul Coverdale strategy. And Sonny Perdue capitalized upon that strategy to beat the very popular Roy Barnes, who nobody thought 
could possibly be beat. And so the rural strategy is um, that they take everything outside Metro Atlanta and they try to run up the margins. So they're running up margins with 16,000 vote totals. I mean, you know, and they're they're squeaking by 70-30, And Democrats have been thinking, well, that's just, those are not very dense counties it's only 16,000 votes who cares you know we want the 800,000 votes coming in from DeKalb County and Fulton County right and math would tell you you would think you would want that but math also tells you that those 16,000 votes they add up they add up they add up up. and so there's 150 counties outside of Metro Atlanta and what they've been doing is running really Mm -hmm. you know thin vote totals but large margins and that's how they squeak by and win so one of the topics of conversation for 2020, yeah. uh, I had a conversation with somebody within the party, and the question that was posed to me was, do we go for 50,000 more votes in Metro Atlanta, mm-hmm. or do we target, let's say, out of 22 or 23 counties, another 100 and something thousand mm-hmm. votes? And I said, I don't think the construct is, is correct, because the, the Republicans saw how they lost in the suburbs big time this time. So what are they going to do? They're coming to Metro Atlanta because they have their rural strategy so well implemented. Mm-hmm. So I said, no, we have to have a dual prong effort. We have to go for the 50,000 more in the Metro and we have to go to the rural part of the state. The math's not there if we don't do it. Absolutely. The, the answer to your question is both. We have got to do both. And one of the reasons I became interested in the uh, David Perdue race for Senate when I did not run for governor mm-hmm. um, in the 2018 cycle was because uh, I really felt like Republicans we're not expecting for a formidable uh, statewide worthy candidate to be running from outside the metro Atlanta area. I agree. I, I, mm-hmm. They cannot, in my humble opinion, they cannot mount um, a, a winnable strategy against that. If we can right. shave the margins for, with a mayor from southwest Georgia, somebody who's well known in central and south Georgia as well as in the Atlanta area, um, it, we begin to shave those margins and they simply cannot win. Well, I mean, it's good that you said that because you have an exploratory committee. Yes. And one thing that that, uh, that I am excited about and optimistic about and then one thing that I'm concerned about is the talent that we have outside the metro Atlanta region. Now, we love it, Atlanta. We know that there is, you know, innumerable talent and, and, and qualified people that are in metro Atlanta, but too often we see this in north Georgia, south Georgia, coastal Georgia, where there are talented people that don't have a pipeline pipeline or an entry point, you being a mayor, you having this credential, you, you know, all this amazing background, consideration for 2018 and different seats, and now we see a year coming up, 2020, mm-hmm. when Democrats can really make strides, and to be quite frank with you, if you look at what's going on with the census and with redistricting, we've got to have the right Democrats yes. running. Mm-hmm. So I'm optimistic that someone like your name has come up. We've heard a few names. We've heard John Ossoff's name. Oh, we've yeah. heard mm-hmm. um, Sarah Miko, who's been mm-hmm. on our show. But I'm, I'm excited to hear your name. My concern is Stacy has gotten so much attention nationally, and we're in a position now where it seems like you know, the progress or the aggressiveness we can take or get behind someone, we've got to wait till she's making the right decision. And, and I know she has a lot on her plate. Yeah. How, how do we as Democrats not lose ground on a candidate like David Perdue 
if we're not, you know, knowing, you know, what direction we're going in right now. Right, and and I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that we risk making is time is of the essence. It is. I mean, even the the Purdue family refers to their their political situation as the Purdue dynasty. And oh, so, wow, yeah, I know, isn't that something? But but um, but it's not to be underestimated. Yeah. Um, they have uh, grassroots throughout the state. It, this is going to you're going to have to have chops. Mm -hmm. This is a twenty two million dollar race. You're going to have to know how to. Uh, raise money. You're going to have to have significant experience, a real record, a, uh, you know, somebody who has actually accomplished things and won elections and all of this. And so, um, as somebody who is a tireless uh, retail politicker, I mean, basically, it, it's going to be all in all the time. And so, every minute is precious. Um, I would say, as far as uh, Stacey Abrams, who did such amazing things and has become a national progressive voice, I think, in moving the Democratic party forward, um, you know, she had not, as she has said publicly, thought about running for Senate. Um, she was, of course, expecting to be the next governor of the state of Georgia, yeah. but for the things we've all heard about, would be. Uh, and so it was in January when Senator Schumer um, basically offered her to be the Democratic uh, uh, Party's choice for that particular seat. And as you said, she had a lot on her plate. Uh, she was going through fair fight. Uh, now she's got fair account, which mm -hmm. is, is amazingly important. And so, um, you know, we've been staying in touch during this process. Uh, our, our team had actually planned on launching earlier, as I've said uh, publicly. February 19th was our launch date. Um, but with this, we've stood down. Um, if Stacy wants to run, then I'll be the first person to write a check for Stacy and work for Stacy, yeah. uh, because uh, she and I both have been in the field too long, uh, waiting for Democrats to take back the state. We are not going to have two uh, women with statewide gravitas run against each other in the Democratic primary. Uh, we're just not going to do it. And so, um, to me, this isn't about ego. This is about the better governing policies. All elected officials have ego, certainly, but I'll just get mine stroked some other way, which will be the Democrats taking the seat against from David <laughs> Perdue. But I, I don't think she's going to run, but you know who knows? She knows. That's and right. so she's going to tell us um, by uh, April 30th. And so that's why uh, we filed the Exploratory Committee for a couple of reasons. One, we were bumping up against the FEC $5,000 mm -hmm. right. minimum. We had to uh, because we had already put some of that infrastructure in place before we knew she was going to be considering it. And, um, and so we had to go ahead in order to remain in compliance. Uh, but she's going to tell us by April 30th, um, if she is not in, we will be ready to go. So for our audience, yeah, explain the difference between exp an exploratory committee and just a straight up announced campaign. Yeah, well, you can raise money for an exploratory committee, and, and that's a lot of, of what we're doing. Uh, you can, of course, hire people and set up structure. Um, you can test messages, conduct surveys, all of that. What you can't do is declare that you're running, declare okay. that you're a candidate, um, put materials out there that say you're the Senate, senatorial candidate, you know, right. that kind of thing. So you can't be, um, there can't be a finality, a decisiveness about the fact that you quote unquote are, you're, the language is you're testing the waters. Okay. So you can go to rallies, you can be on podcasts, <laughs> you can answer all kinds of questions and, and do a lot of stuff. And that's what we are doing, trying to uh, you know, plow that field for great success. One thing I want to, you know, look at though is, you know, it's it's very interesting. We're in the Donald Trump era. Yeah. And, you know, what we laughed at in 2016 with the, what we called circus show, what many of us called a circus show of, of the Republican candidates 
um, it now seems like the Democratic Party, we have these multiple identities, these multiple figures. And the challenge that I'm having is, you know, I think we're now at 17 uh, presidential candidates. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, just about every single one of them are, are qualified and very smart and intelligent and represent an array of ideas. The challenge, though, is we now have crossed into this space of identity politics heavy within mm -hmm. the Democratic Party. And you have seemingly been, I think, in a sense, you have been able in Columbus to, to, to do a lot of things that we're now seeing in Atlanta through identity politics, whether that's around race or culture or, you know, is it time for a woman to run? Should a man be on the ballot? How do you see those uh, types of issues as it relates to identity politics yeah. being a factor in the coming election? Because I'm excited about, you know, one, the fact that we have a, a Sarah Miko, a, a Stacey Abrams, a Teresa. T we have so many amazing women, but we also have a lot of really great, talented people that are men as well. Oh, yeah. and, and we don't want to ever disenfranchise. How do you navigate? If you were to May 1st announce that you're running for U.S. Senate, how do you navigate through not just national, but how do you navigate through democratic politics in Georgia without getting caught up in a lot of the conversations that I believe is kind of like impeding the agenda, mm -hmm. which is good Democrats running and our ability to win at every mm -hmm. single level? Well, you know, first of all, I see identity as a point of um, pride and respect and distinction mm -hmm. and not as a wedge. Okay, and so, so not weaponized. You're ready not to weaponize it, mm -hmm. not to wedge people away from keeping their eye on the ball of what we're talking about, which is good governing principles that mm -hmm. help you uh, help your life prosper. And that's what that's the role of government. So who is capable of governing, and how is it exactly they're going to do that? And I think people bring their perspectives, whether it's gender, uh, whether it's race, whether it's socioeconomic background and experience and exposure. Um, I, I think all that needs to be fleshed out. I don't. I don't um, shy away from it. I think we've we've got to just be full on, um, you know, frontal about. Hey, this is who I am. This is who he is. These are the perspectives I bring. These are the and celebrate them. I'm not worried about the 17 presidential candidates, for instance. I know everybody thinks it's going to become a circular firing squad. I actually think it's going to be a robust heavy debate of progressive ideas and help us move the bell curve back towards the center yeah. from the right position we have been in really since the 80s. And so I say, hey, let's celebrate it. And, and you know, sometimes I think I love pollsters. Thank you all for what you do. But, <laughs> um, but you know, sometimes they slice and dice us just too much. That's right. Um, people want to, they want to be aspirational and they want to know how their government works for them. And the fact that you're a woman of this ethnicity within this age range and therefore the package tells them that you should be most electable, that's not necessarily going to, to resonate with the voters. And we see that time and time again when Barack Obama ran uh, for president um, the first time around in 2008. A lot of people thought he was just testing things out, that by the polls and by the geographic yeah, you know, uh, splitting of hairs, that it had to be uh, Hillary Clinton. But the man caught a wave, yeah. and he had a message, and people responded, and you saw people voting for him that it was shocking, you know, that, that should by no pollsters uh, data, um, by no Ouija board should, yeah. should people be voting 
for this, but they were. They were lining up because they believed he could provide them better government, and he did. So, right. you know, that that's what it's about to me. So I, I appreciate, I, to me, it's, I no, say you, let's celebrate identity. Yeah, but, but it's good that you answered that because, yeah. I mean, and, and we all know this. Eric knows this. We have this conversation all the time. Mm -hmm. You'll be surprised how many people don't even want to have the conversation about it because identity politics is very real, but there are also some unintended consequences. And, you know, for you to be able to even answer the question, it's a really good thing because there's a lot of conversations in the state party that we have not had and I'm happy to see this door opening where people's concerns are now being brought to the forefront the fact that you've driven two and a half hours yeah. from your home <laughs> yeah. to this part of the state mm -hmm. um, in an exploratory committee state mm -hmm. uh, shows your commitment and your willingness to want to hear what people have to say and, and you want to make sure people know hey you know I know I'm way down in Columbus but you guys appear important too oh absolutely well I've been you know up to Rome Georgia and Dahlonega and you know all over already um, yeah. because of course we thought we would have had a campaign by now but, you know we didn't realize that it was going to be played out quite like this as I explained earlier and so we had booked a lot of these type of events and I intend to continue to do that should I be the one that runs uh, for US Senate um, because I'm just telling you something Daniel uh, we're all just people yeah. you know mm -hmm. yeah. we're all, I know we can make it complicated if we want but we're all just people trying to figure out our best most productive most joyous life and and really people don't want to have to wake up and worry about what's going to be tweeted and how that's going to affect their lives they just want government to be a framework in which they live their most prosperous life and who's going to help them do that yeah so as a potential candidate mm -hmm. What are you passionate about? I mean, what what would you hypothetically run on? Right. Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I want to answer that first is what has been done, and then is what mm -hmm. will will be done if I'm able to mm -hmm. run and win uh, for the U.S. Senate. But you know, Daniel was talking about some of the things that we did in Columbus that was so mm -hmm. successful, and what we did do was we transitioned from basically I hate to use the pejorative term, but a good old boy and outdated political system to something that was more receptive of people That's for all inclusive. generations. Mm -hmm in a yeah. minority majority community and it starts with respect but the two things that that when you are mayor of a community that you learn and it's what it, when you talk with governors or senators or the president of the United States you can hear the same thing are, our two biggest issues are poverty and in that is inclusive of um, you know uh, economic inequality and and all sorts of things stem for that and really health and mental health mm -hmm. um, those two things every education crime you know everything that you can run down that's important to you stems from those two things and so when you understand that that government's going to have to create a structure where people can navigate those those burdens those struggles those systemic issues better that then you understand where the rub is with government so mm -hmm. I say that as, as mayor and that's a lot of what we did to try to um, correct that structure Daniel to make people more prosperous to have better access to government um, government that worked for them okay so how does that translate to what the US Senate does mm -hmm. um, the US Senate is basically right now and has been for some time gripped by utter dysfunction mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, interestingly, before I was mayor, I was actually an attorney. I specialized in something called complex litigation. And basically that meant that when your, your case was totally in the crapper, <laughs> your lawyer called my firm mm -hmm. and I was, uh, I was put on the case. And so I learned at a pretty young age to solve the seemingly unsolvable. I, I was basically given a tangled ball of yarn and said, here, fix this. Yeah. 
And, and um, you learn to be incredibly innovative. You've got to think outside the box. You've got to rewrite the way things have always been done. So fast forward, and then, of course, as mayor, I had to do that because you inherit this huge mm -hmm. political and economic structure of how things have always been done, how people are working. So you look at the Senate, and it's a total dysfunctional mess. They're addicted to the fight. Uh, you watch it, they're the, you think you're watching the WWF, <laughs> not the USA. I yeah. mean, you're like, Wait, are we going to mm -hmm. have a full body slam, or what's going on here? And, and they've gotten so far away, um, you see it with the fact that, um, you know, the Supreme Court ruled that the Voting Rights Act, part of the Voting Rights Act, was un unconstitutional um, and therefore lifted some of the protections we had in the mm -hmm. South. Well, just stop for a minute as you argue about, well, should the South be, you know, uh, put back under the Voting Rights Act? Why should not all 50 states be under the Voting Rights Act? Why is not every single citizen of the United States of America not being protected right. and assured their one man, one vote right under the Constitution? So that's the first thing I'm hugely passionate about. From there, the suppression issues flow and, mm -hmm. and are corrected, the gerrymandering issues flow. But you get all 50 states under that Voting Rights Act. You bring back the pre-approval uh, status that we had at the Justice Department and fund it because mm -hmm. it's worth being funded. That's right. um, you know, having access to health care, what we don't appreciate, we talk about infrastructure and government all the time from roads and bridges. You'll hear politicians talk about that all day, right? They love to talk about that stuff. Well, what about financial infrastructure? Um, the stability that, that provides um, the economic continuity for prosperity to go on, not just in these peaks and valleys that, frankly, our Republican friends seem to really love. Mm -hmm. They like to juice it and profiteer, and then it crashes, and they juice it That's and profiteer right. again. Well, the whole concept of government is you create this broad framework in which we have this stability. So one of the things that's causing great instability is the devastating cost of health care and mental health care in our country today. And it's causing all sorts of issues from, I mean, everything from uh, gun violence um, in schools and, and these horrific things we've seen um, to people uh, being devastated after a loved one um, dies from a prolonged illness because mm -hmm. they simply can't make it through. And, and we are a country that needs to start providing financial infrastructure. And by that I mean we've got to find a way to expand Medicaid and Medicare. And, and it is doable. Um, it's just that we start from those who don't want to do it at all. I want everybody to, quote, pull themselves up from their bootstraps and go find their own health care miraculously, you know, because it's growing on trees. And, um, and then those over here who say, well, tomorrow let's start with uh, Universal and Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. um, I think we can get there because I do think that, that Medicare for all and expansion of Medicaid, um, however you want to phrase it, because they are two different paths mm -hmm. uh, to try and get there. Um, if you take it in a meaningful but incremental uh, staging, you're, you're going to get there very quickly. Um, but if you, ex and by that I mean, for instance, I think there is presently a consensus um, in, in Washington, D.C. to expand uh, Medicare to 55. And uh, the reason why is because uh, the insurance companies are going to say, oh, heck yeah, uh, because they're the most costly to insure, for mm -hmm. instance. So you take them and put them under uh, Medicare. Um, the, the market can then adjust, and your premiums should fall. Um, if they don't fall, then that allows for more government intervention because the market is not functioning mm -hmm. correctly. Um, the other thing is, interestingly, for Republicans, 
Um, guess who would benefit most from expanding Medicare to 55? Yeah. All first responders, yep. all people, people that have that ever worked in public for. safety, the people they say they're advocating for, because people, uh, public safety um, first responders, they retire at 55 across the nation. And those 10 years are the worst fiscal 10 mm -hmm. years of their lives, yeah. is they have to go on the market and pay $16,000 a person for mm -hmm. for medical care. So that's just, uh, that's just something, that, you know, all the way down to, we have got to take marijuana off of Schedule 1. Why aren't we doing that? Mm -hmm. For God's sake, uh, to allow research and its its propensities to provide, uh, you know, health care and, and a meaningful um, medicine to kids suffering from uh, seizures, people with uh, cancer, uh, opioid treatments. I mean, it's just, what are we doing? There's an and then the offenders, of the, yeah, mm -hmm. the low end of offenders who are uh, clogging our prisons and being denied their life for marijuana possession. It's mm -hmm. ridiculous. And, and it's all because we put it on schedule one and somehow we right. just can't take it off. So, so anyway, yeah. we've got about in our last kind of 10 sure. minutes. First of all, you uh, I'm, I'm impressed because okay. mm -hmm. uh, from a presidential candidate to U.S. Senate to governors, we don't hear a lot of poverty is rarely put on the front end. 92% of folks that are born in Atlanta, um, they are destined to stay and never get out of poverty. Yeah. 92%. 1.9 million people in Georgia live in poverty, 47 million people in the U.S. live in poverty, 88% of our prison population comes from zip codes that are impoverished and they read at a third, third grade level. So all of what you're saying is tying in and making sense. So one of the things I want to ask, and then I'm, I'll have Eric ask, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get ready to close out, but 13% of black men voted for Brian Kemp. Yeah. 17 or 16 percent of black men voted for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. The reason why most of the black men and black professionals that I have spoken to said they made that decision was because of financial opportunity. Yeah. And when you mention financial literacy, I think that is one area that the Democratic Party as a whole has missed. We are yeah. so focused on social issues, and I don't just mean welfare, but a lot of times if a kid that is in a drug-laden or gun-laden community understands financial literacy early, that same kid that's selling drugs may be an entrepreneur. Yeah. If a young woman that is in a single-parent household is introduced to financial opportunities earlier, she will make better decisions early, and we will hopefully help to lower that number of sexual violence and human trafficking, because a lot of times not to say at any time is any person to blame for that but but when you're in a community and you are not given resources you find other options and sometimes those options put you in the wrong place at the wrong time can you commit that you know if you become uh, a US senator mm -hmm. uh, how how important is it to you and I don't I don't want you to be redundant but financial literacy is, is so critical. How would you work with the state to ensure, especially low-income communities, and you said you said it earlier, Columbus is a minority-majority yeah. county. In so many areas, especially in rural parts of our country and in rural parts of our state, access to wireless broadband oh, yeah. and access to mm -hmm. financial literacy is crippling yeah. our communities. How would you help to address that on day well, one? You know, from the federal government standpoint and from the Senate standpoint, Daniel, they're actually really the ones that are helping providing this funding and the programs which help states relieve the very type of structural things that are perpetuating poverty yeah. uh, through the school systems. And, and again, our Republican friends like to act like the, the Department of Education shouldn't even be there. Uh, somehow that, that's something you should do for yourself is find a way to educate yourself um, and, and really begin to segment and 
and rip apart the public education system. We can't have that. So that speaks to your financial literacy. And the Senate is very involved in that, although they've sort of uh, shirked that responsibility for a very long time. Um, the broadband, uh, you know, high-speed uh, rail to get people from what is uh, rural areas so they can live one place and, and their kids can work in Atlanta yeah. because it's, it's you know, uh, 70 minutes on it's a high-speed rail. Mm -hmm. It's just infrastructure that allows people access to prosperity. But let me say something. When you were talking about 13% of African men voting for, um, for Kemp and 17 for uh, Donald Trump, uh, and the fact that there was a financial aspect to that. Um, Democrats tend to talk in moral imperatives. Republicans talk in uh, economic terms. Mm -hmm. And so if you are someone who is, your brain is just set to, your ears perk when people start talking about tax systems and, and, and tax cuts and the free market and all this kind of stuff, you don't even hear what Democrats are saying because they're talking about children that are going hungry and, and you, they, you just think they're pandering, right? The people, the, the men you're talking about probably think, eh, that woman's just pandering. She's just trying to get emotional support for, for the, the um, issues that she, she wants to forward. But the fact of the matter is democratic policies are actually the better economic policies because what, what Republicans do to make it real simple is they're good at squeezing juice out of the orange, but they never plant orange trees. Yeah. And so, you know, where in the world is the orchard coming from? And they're, and they're using up these, to carry the, the analogy, the oranges at a breakneck speed. And that is, and that is causing greater economic disparity. It's going to uh, come into greater um, economic instability. Um, frankly, we're going to um, have a circumstance, and many people are concerned about this, of civic disruption as people are like, wait just a minute. I'm as entitled to a life and to prosperity, uh, you know, as, as anyone else. Yeah. Uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, for God's sake. That's what it's all about. And we can't continue to build a system that allows such extreme profit, uh, profiteering and, inability, uh, and instability. And, and so those are things that the Senate and federal legislation speaks directly to because they create the foundation and the framework. And the free market can work within that. You know, I told you before that when I was eight years old, my best friend's dad was a Republican. Mm -hmm. And what that taught me, frankly, is I am a proud Democrat and a proud progressive. I speak fluent Republican. <laughs> and so what I'm able to do is tell people, and one of the reasons I had, you know, such a wonderful incredible success with the team we had in Columbus, Georgia during my years as mayor is because I was able to explain to people who didn't know they liked progressive policies that progressive mm -hmm. policies were in their best interest. And I say all the time that the Chamber of Commerce is full of closeted progressives um, because they like to have um, educated workforce. Um, they like to have um, great quality of life because they're bringing jobs and these corporations and manufacturing facilities to the communities. Guess what all that stuff is? Good progressive governing principles. So Democrats have the better of this, and I'm fine with if you want to convey that in a moral scenario and a moral um, imperative um, of being our brother's keeper, but don't forget, you need to be able to turn around to one of those 17% of African-American men you were talking about and say, buddy, it's because it's in your best interest we need 
access to health care because you're paying for it right now. You're paying for the fact that other people don't have it. And be bold and, yeah. and intentional about it. So, Okay, so, so I got one yeah. last thing that, that I think is kind of amusing, and I, I'd like to see what you think of it. Yeah. So you as an attorney, a friend of mine who's an attorney, he's, he sees the dysfunction in the Senate, and his theory is there are so many attorneys trying to outdo another attorney and win their argument that it causes dysfunction. Do you buy into that? <laughs> no, you know what? It's actually, there's fewer attorneys in the federal government and the federal legislature than there ever has been. And there's plenty of attorneys that think they need more there <laughs> because what you see are people who don't understand. I mean, this happens every single day. Um, I just explained to a gentleman today, he said something about the, the border. And he said, well, the problem with the border is that, um, that everybody's just crashing it and that's not the way it's ever been before. When, when my family came from Cuba, we came in lawfully. I said, no, sir, because I happen to know him. You came in on a raft to the port of Miami and you sought asylum and it was granted you mm -hmm. under U.S. And, and international law. These folks are doing the same, not on a raft. It's just not being granted to them. That's what's creating. The process mm -hmm. is broken down. They're not funding the judges. They're not funding the process that we need for people to come through. And, and, and you know, so I actually think if we had lawyers, and maybe not more lawyers, but plenty of <laughs> such lawyers. Such as yourself. Yeah, such as myself. Um, you know, things like that need to be called out is that, you know, our current president didn't fund the State Department to keep the programs that the prior president had in place in Ecuador and some right. of these places where people could seek asylum and stay in their homes. Well, that, that program was obliterated mm -hmm. by the current administration, which caused people to have to leave their homes and approach the border. Then, of course, you know, funding was taken away um, from aid programs that were helping uh, to partner with these countries to provide basic stability so they could mm -hmm. feel. Now they just we just have flight. And then, of course, you've got the um, climate change circumstance. It's only going to get worse. And I think it's time for Republicans uh, to issue a big fat apology to Al Gore and right. Jimmy Carter because had they listened to them 30 years ago and 20 years ago, then we wouldn't have this kind of situation now. Our, our effect to change climate impact um, could be more moderate, could be more incremental. Mm -hmm. But I'm telling you, if we don't start... Um, a penny spent in foreign aid to some of these communities with real partnerships and, and effective programs, which we've had in the past, is is pennies on the dollar to what we're paying for to stop right. them at the border. We've got to get smart about the economic investment that gives us best government. So, so here's what I'm going to do. Yeah. First of all, when you announce if that happens, yes, if we, out, yeah. we want you here. We want you, you back. Yeah, I love we, it. We are going to organize and we're going to hold a rally. We're going to do something super cool and we're going to get you even longer because we want to. <laughs> we want to hear everything laid up. Uh, should you make that decision? Thank you. Yeah. But on the personal side, you drove up here two and a half hour. What, what was in your What was on your playlist? What were you listening to? Oh, on my playlist. Well, I have to say the last song I heard before I got out of the car was Alicia Keys. So, oh, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> All it right. just happened to be, so it got me pumped up. If I'm talking a little fast, it just happened to come up. This girl's on fire, so I yeah. apologize for the corniness, but it's true. Well, Alicia's <laughs> husband, Swiss Beats, has recorded out this very biz building, so that's, oh, that's, that's cool. That's great. Yeah, what yeah. Is, what's your favorite dish? Um, I have to say macaroni and cheese. I'm sorry, I keep it simple. <laughs> but macaroni, I, I told my husband all the time, if I ever get an opportunity for a last meal, all I want <laughs> 
is collard greens, fried chicken, and macaroni and oh, cheese. My, my mom's gosh. from South Georgia, so you know she's one of those big, you know, comfort food cooks. I got you. So yeah, yeah. Well, Mayor Teresa, on yep. behalf of myself. And myself, Eric, thank yeah, you. Thank we you. want to thank you for being a part of Blue Topsy. Uh, your voice has added so much value mm-hmm. to our show, and we know that for the men and women and children and everyone that's listening to our show, they're going to be excited about hearing what's next for you. Uh, mm-hmm. Your track record speaks for itself, and we need more good Democrats, and I hope you stay out here. I hope you encourage. I hope you help us to build out the bench that the Democratic Party in Georgia deserves. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This episode of the Blue Topsy Podcast was recorded at Tree Sound Studios. Remember to follow us on social media at Blue Topsy on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And visit our website at bluetopsy.com where you can find the latest breakdown of each episode and show notes.